Hello and welcome, friends, family, and enemies alike. Truly thankful. Thank you all so much for joining me for another episode of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite Phil Olson. Thank you for joining me to Season 2, Episode 1. Now, before we begin, a little bit formatting changes that I'm going to make. Um, number one is, I learned a lot from my first season, and one of the things that I want to do for this season is, instead of trying to go through an incredibly long book, or even a shorter book, but it taking like 10 weeks or longer to get through, we're just going to take chunks out of one specific book each month, and that is what we are going to focus on for that month. And then the next month, we're going to be in a completely different book. That's way, if I did my math correctly, we'll be going through 11 books this season in little small snippets to whet your appetite, as it were. And on that brilliant transition, the book that we're going to be reading for the remainder of February is called The History of a Mouthful of Bread and Its Effect on the Organization of Men and Animals. It is written by a Frenchman named Jean Massy. And what's interesting about this book and about what I like about it is it's actually written to children. Jean originally wrote this to a little girl, and he was explaining human anatomy and nature as we know it around us, but breaking it down into really helpful metaphors and, you know, speaking to this girl like a child, as he should be. But I will preface that by saying that this section that I'm going to be reading on, it's entitled The Heart, um, in celebration of Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Um uses a lot of big words in it, to be honest, that I don't think somebody who is considered a little person or a little child, a little girl, a little boy, whatever, I don't think they would fully understand some of these things. Or he references geography that, like, I certainly didn't know about when I was at a young age. So, with that being said, um, we're going to treat this and I'm going to read it as if I was reading to a young child. And so forgive the pedantic tone that I possess throughout this. But I'm just trying to capture the tone of this book best by doing so. So, without further ado, let us begin. <clears throat> the Heart There once upon a time was a banker. A millionaire who could reckon his wealth not by millions only, but by hundreds of millions and more, who was, in fact, so tremendously rich that he did not know what to do with his money, a difficulty in which nobody had ever been before. This man took it into his head to build a place infinitely superior to anything that had hitherto been seen. Marbles, carpets, 
gildings, silk hangings, pictures, and statues. In fact, the whole mass of commonplace luxuries as one sees them, even in the grandest royal abodes, fell short of his magnificent pretensions. He was an intelligent man, and thoroughly understood the respect due to his riches, and the common fate of kings seemed to him far too shabby for the entertainment of his dynasty, which he looked upon as very superior to all the families of crowned heads in the world. In consequence, he sent to the four quarters of the globe for the most illustrious professors, the most skillful engineers, the cleverest and most ingenious workmen in every department, and giving them unlimited permission as to expenditure, ordered them to adorn his palace with all the wonders of science and human industry. Science and human industry and unlimited means. What will they not accomplish? No wonder that nothing was talked of for a hundred miles around, but the magic building, of which, by the way, I do not venture to give you a description, because it would carry me too far away. Let it suffice to say that never Emperor of China, Caliph of Baghdad, or Great Mogul had such a habitation as our banker, and for a very good reason. He was twenty times as rich as any such gentry as I've named ever were in their lives. When all was finished, one trifling flaw was discovered. The place was not supplied with water. A spring seeker who is summoned to the premises could only discover a small subterranean water course, a sort of zigzag pipe formed by nature between two beds of clay in which the rain of the neighborhood collected as in a sort of reservoir. The water was neither very clear nor very plentiful, as you may imagine, and the professor appointed to examine it, having begun by tasting it, made a horrible face, and declared there was no use in proceeding any further for it had a stagnant flavor, ugh, which would not be agreeable to my lord. To the amazement of everybody, my lord jumped for joy when he heard this unpleasant news. It was proposed to him to fetch water from a river which flowed a few miles distance off, but he would hear nothing of the sort. What he wanted was something new, unexpected, impossible. That was his object throughout. He took a pen and drew up at a sitting the following program, which caused our poor professors to open their eyes in dismay. First, we will 
use the water on the premises. Secondly, it shall flow night, day, and in all parts of the palace at once. Thirdly, there shall be plenty of it, and it shall be good. The professors looked at each other for some time without speaking, and the gravest of them, whose fortunes and characters had been long ago established, suggested that they should simply give my lord and his money the slip, and so teach him to make fools of people another time. But the youngsters, less easily discouraged, cried out against this with one accord. They declared that the honor of science was at stake, and that they ought to return impudence for impudence by executing to the letter the impertinent program. At length, after much discussion and many propositions made against all hope and thrown aside one after the other, as impracticable, a sudden inspiration crossed the brain of an engineer who had not yet spoken, and the following is what he proposed. What prevented the water from being sweet and fit to drink was the want of movement and air. What had to be done, therefore, was to erect a pump but a pump provided with numberless small pipes extending to the watercourse in all directions and so arranged that by means of them it should be able to draw up the water from all the corners and windings where it lay stagnating and then forcing it forward into a pipe terminating in a rose like that of a watering pot, whence it should gush out to fall down in fine rain into a reservoir in the open air. From thence, another action of the pump was to bring it back well aerated, to send it once more into a large pipe with numerous lesser ramifications, which should convey it into every corner of the palace. Up to this point, all seemed practical, but the hardest part had not yet come. The great difficulty was how to supply this enormous consumption with so slender a runnel of water as the one at their disposal. But our engineer had provided for this by a stroke of genius, under each of the taps, always kept open, which were dispersed all over the palace, he would place a small cistern from the bottom of which should go a pipe communicating with the body of the force pump, which drew up the water from the original watercourse, by which means the water, which ran from the taps, would be taken up again and go back to feed the reservoir in the open air, whence it would again return to, to supply the taps, 
and so on and so on. The same water continually keeping the game alive, as people call it. Have you not sometimes seen at a circus or theater a large army represented by a hundred supernumeraries whose file in close columns before the audience going out at one side of the stage and coming in at the other, following close at each other's heels indefinitely? By a similar artifice, the engineer would change his meager little runnel into an inexhaustible fountain. The water, drawn up from the watercourse by each stroke of the pump, would fully compensate for what was used in its passage through the palace by the inhabitants. Lastly, as it might sometimes happen that the said inhabitants washed their hands under the taps, the water, on its return to the cisterns, was to pass through a series of small filters in order to cleanse it from any impurity it might have contracted by the way. Always flowing, always limpid, it would soon lose every trace of its original source and might defy comparison with the water of any river in the world. A unanimous buzz of congratulations welcomed this plan. At once, so simple and so bold, and our professors thought their troubles were over. But they were not at the end of their difficulties yet. When it came to the actual erection of the machine, naturally a most complicated one, as it had to set a going, a quintuple system of pipes. Pipes from the watercourse to the pump, pipes from the pump to the reservoir, and pipes from the reservoir to the pump, from the pump to the taps, and from the taps to the pump again. <sighs> Our banker, who had got amused and excited as they went on, conducted them to a small dark closet, only a few square feet in size, concealed in a corner of the large apartments, and informed them with a laugh that he had no other place to offer them. Besides which, he made them understand that on account of its situation, there could be no question of furnaces or boilers being set up there. He detested equally coal smoke, fires, and explosions. Nor of workmen employed about the machine. It would not be decent to have them going up and down the front staircase, nor, above all, of the frightful brake wheels always screeching and grinding the unwieldy pistons rising and falling with a noise sufficient to give one a headache. He himself slept near the little dark closet, and the slightest noise was fatal to his repose. Having explained all this, the rich man curtly made his bow and retired. For once, our professors owned themselves beaten. 
They had come forward quite proud of their invention, and now they were received, not with ecstasies of delight, but with fresh demands, more ridiculous even than the first. They were decidedly being mystified, and were preparing in consequence to pack up and be gone, furious and swearing by all their gods that they would never again expose science to see itself disgraced by a purse-proud vulgarian scorn. When lo, happily, a good fairy, the special friend of learned men, came passing by that way. She raised her enchanted wand with the tip of her finger, and all at once a little girl dressed in rags, appeared in the midst of our astonished professors. Without giving them time to recover themselves, the child put her hand into the little patched waist of her dress and drew forth a rounded object about the size of her closed fist, from which hung a quantity of tubes spreading in all directions. See, cried she, here is the machine your banker demands of you. Picture to yourself a small closed bag narrowing to a point at the end and separated within two very distinct compartments by a fleshy partition which went across the inside from the top to the bottom. Such was the object held up by the little girl. From each of these compartments issued a thick tube, ramifying into endless smaller ones, and they were moreover each surmounted by a sort of pouch into which ran another tube of the same description as the first. Each of these four portions the two compartments and their pouches, was in constant but independent motion, distending and contracting alternately, and by carefully examining the noiseless play of this singular machine, the walls of which were, by the magic power of the fairy, rendered transparent to the bystanders, the learned assembly were very soon enabled to convince themselves that it fulfilled all the monstrous conditions exacted of them by the fantastic millionaire. All was in movement together, I told you. But let us begin at one end. The right-hand compartment and its pouch represented the first pump. The pump employed to draw, by the same stroke, the water from the stagnant channel, and that from the taps. It was perfectly easy to distinguish the two systems of pipes and how they united together at the small pouch on their arrival. When this was distended, a vacuum was created inside, which was instantly filled by the liquid from the tube which ran into it. Do not ask me how or why. I will explain that presently. 
When it contracted again, the liquid which had just entered was not able to get back, being prevented from doing so by a very ingenious and simple contrivance, which requires a brief explanation. Take off the lock from your bedroom door, which opens inside. Then, standing outside, push against it with your shoulder, and you will get in without any difficulty. But, when you are in, try to push the door open again with your shoulder in order to get outside into the passage, and you will find that you will not be able to pass through, and this simply because it does not open on that side, which was exactly what happened to the liquid in the pouch. The door between the tube and the pouch only opened inwardly, and the liquid finding itself pressed on all sides in proportion as the pouch contracted more and more and unable to return, was obliged at last to make its way through another similar door, which led to the large compartment below. Here, the same game recommenced. The compartment, which had distended itself to receive it, contracted in its turn, and the liquid, finding the road again, barred behind it, had no choice but to force its way through the tube, which led to the air reservoir. Here commenced the work of the second pump, the pump of the left compartment. The little pouch, when distended, was filled by the liquid from the reservoir and then forced forward into the large compartment below, always by means of the same process. This compartment again drove it by a powerful contraction into the large conducting tube charged with the office of its general distribution throughout the body. At the end of all which, it returned once more into the right-hand pump as before, to pursue the same course again, etc., etc. Thus, as you see, the whole mechanism turned upon two little points of detail of the simplest description possible. Namely, first, on the entrance doors only opening on one side, and secondly, on the elastic covers of the pouches and compartments distending and contracting spontaneously. It was the prettiest thing in the world to see this unpretending-looking little bag working thus, quite naturally, without a suspicion that it was solving a problem which so many men, proud of their science, had given up as hopeless. Certainly here was a machine which made no noise. Once installed in its dark closet, it would have been necessary to place your hand upon it to find out that it had moved at all. My lord could certainly sleep beside it without disturbance. How much do you want for it? said they to the poor little beggar girl. Name your price. 
Have no fear. We will pay you anything you wish. I cannot give it to you, replied the child. I need it too much myself. Uh, it is my heart. Now that you have seen it, make another like it if you can. And she disappeared. It is said that the engineer, who longed to see his idea carried out, tried hard to construct a similar machine with gutta percha and iron wires and to set it in motion by electricity. But history does not tell us that he succeeded, and we have yet to ask ourselves whether the richest man in the world, aided by the wisest men in the world, could ever provide himself with a miracle of wonder such as the ragged child had received as a free gift from the hands of a gracious creator. End of letter 13. The heart. Wow. You know, just clear as day, wasn't it? I obviously knew they were talking about a heart. I mean, come on. What else... What else could they have been talking about? <laughs> uh, I don't know about you, but I'm a very, like, visual person. And believe me when I tell you, as I was reading this, I was even getting lost in the description. But I'm told that the actual book, if I actually owned it, would um, have pictures in it so you could see a model of what they were talking about. And I'm sure it would resemble greatly a heart. But um, definitely very fascinating to just just walk through this and to see how this man breaks down all of these large concepts, or at least attempts to, to explain them to a little child. And, uh, I mean, if you continue reading, I mean, he's going through a lot of stuff, okay? Like, he doesn't just talk on the heart. And he uses similar metaphors, some of them clearer than the other. But just to give you a small sampling, um, you know, he'll talk about the teeth, the stomach, the intestinal canal, the liver, the arterial and venous blood, atmospheric pressure, carbon and oxygen combustion, the action of the blood upon the organs, carbonic acid ailments of combustion, composition of the blood, and so on and so forth when he's talking about man. And he uses it and breaks it down as simply and as clearly as the language of his time would allow him. And uh, I thought he did a pretty decent job of explaining the problem that the heart has to resolve in its overall function. Now, we know today that you could technically put a pacemaker in replace of your heart if it's not working properly, and it does something to help out that function of what needs to happen to make sure the blood is flowing properly and is properly filtered and everything as it circulates throughout your body. But even at the time, this book keep in mind, was written in 1864, does an excellent job of breaking down the science behind such complex happenings 
in our bodies. So for the rest of February, I will be reading um, through two more things. We're not going to try to do and be ridiculous and do two things, two episodes a week like I was doing last time. I was just trying to get familiar with various things. Now that I'm developing more of a system, so next week, Monday, we'll release, it's called Avis, which is basically on birds, okay? And then the following Monday, February 28th, I will be releasing the episode entitled Reptilia, which of course is on reptiles. Um, so I had to resist with all of my might to discuss teeth because to me, teeth are probably the most fascinating part of the entire human body. But um, that all being said, thank you so much for listening to this beginning episode of a new era and i'm looking forward to continuing to improve my craft i'm going to be bringing people on at some point this year um to 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 talk with me to read with me um and it's going to be a pretty fantastic time and i'm going to have some different focus on different aspects of you know reading out loud benefits of it those types of things there's a lot There's a lot in the pipeline for the future. But for now, signing off, this was the history of a mouthful of bread and its effect on the organization of men and animals by Jean Massy. And, as they say in show business, that's all they wrote. For now.